You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. absolute honor for me to be here with you today and to be sharing with you today on one of the miracles of Jesus. I'm so excited specifically for this story when Riz first talked to David and I about the series um, and we were talking about maybe some of the sermons that David and I would preach. This is the one that I was like, could I please do this story? I love it so much and it's been really powerful for me on a personal level and so I hope that it is for you as well. Um, The story we're going to be studying this morning is the death and resurrection of Lazarus. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 11. The Gospel of John chapter 11. Now something that I think is helpful for us before we just plunge right into the text is for me to show you visually where this story fits into the Gospel of John. And so um, on the screen, I have a little bit of like a map of the book of John. And John is typically broken into two halves. Uh, The first half, chapters 1 through 12, this is often called the Book of Signs. This is focused on the life of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus. And if you've read John, you know John likes to call the miracles of Jesus the signs of Jesus. And there are seven signs in the book of John. The second half of the Gospel of John, often nicknamed the Book of Glory, this is chapters 13 through 21, zooms in on the Passion Week of Jesus, that final week uh, before his death and his resurrection. And so John gives us this amazing detail in the Last Supper, his trial, and his crucifixion. So for us, our story today, chapter 11, actually functions as a transition story. Um, You can think of it like a a door that's swinging open and it's moving us from stories of Jesus' life into the story of his death. And the reason I'm pointing this out to you is because I think as we study this story together, what you'll see is that it's no accident that the transition story into the death and resurrection of Jesus is the death and resurrection of Lazarus. And in a way, the story of Lazarus is like a preview of what's going to happen at the cross, where Jesus defeats the power of death and the power of the grave. Really, really powerful story. So if you would join me as we pray, and then we'll move into the text. Jesus, we love you so much, and I'm just so grateful for the chance we have to get together with brothers and sisters and focus on you, look at you this morning. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would be reminded of your power this morning, your goodness, your love. I pray that if there is anyone in this room who feels like they have been forgotten by you, God, I pray this morning that they would feel seen, they will feel known, um, and that we would walk away seeing you more clearly and more in love with you. I pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so if you have opened your Bible to chapter 11, I think that you are probably noticing this is a very long story. Um, I was really eager to like volunteer for this story and then I was looking at it, I was like, oh yeah, it's 44 verses, it's a really long story. Um, This is very common for John, so John is known for being a bit long-winded in a great way when he tells stories. Uh, He likes to slow down, really draw us into the narrative and take his time. 
But because the narrative is so long, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, instead of reading the whole story right at, at the front, I'm actually going to break the text into three um, sections. We can think of them as three scenes, like the scenes of a play. So we're going to have scene number one, which is when Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick. Scene number two, Jesus has a conversation with Mary and with Martha. And then, of course, scene number three, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. So let's read together the first 16 verses, our very first scene. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So uh, here we have Jesus and he receives word from two sisters, two women, Mary and Martha, that their brother Lazarus is sick. Um, these two women are very close friends of Jesus. They know Jesus very well. And in fact, they are friends of Jesus who often host him in their home when he's traveling through their town. And so uh, we can imagine that Mary and Martha have witnessed Jesus healing people, right? Jesus heals people wherever he goes. And so we can imagine that Mary and Martha are women who have not only firsthand seen miracles of Jesus, but probably even witnessed miracles of healing within their own home. And so now here comes a moment where they have a need. Their brother is sick. And so this is a time to call in a favor from their friend Jesus. And so they send word. And uh, notice the message that they send to Jesus. It's very short. They say, Lord, the one you love is sick. They don't ask him to come. They don't give him any instructions, but there's heavy implication here, right? Lord, the one you love is sick. Um, and, and the implication is to come, to come and do something. Um, that title, the one you love, is very special. In John, it's only used to describe one other person outside of Lazarus, and that's the author himself, the beloved disciple John. So a very special title. Now, Jesus' response to this message is very, very strange. Look at verse 5. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. 
Um, I don't know about you, but this seems very contradictory uh, to uh, the idea that Jesus loves Lazarus. If Jesus loves Lazarus, which in the text it clearly says he does, wouldn't Jesus want to get there as soon as possible to alleviate the suffering of his friend? This is our natural instinct, is Jesus, okay, if you love Lazarus, you need to go now. There's an urgency. And yet Jesus waits two more days. And in those two days, Lazarus dies. And the question, of course, that this brings up in our hearts is, why? Why does Jesus wait? And in fact, we're going to see in the next scene that Mary and Martha are asking the same question. Jesus, if you'd come sooner, my brother wouldn't have died. Why, why did you wait? And uh, Jesus himself is going to clue us into what he's doing. Uh, in verse 4, Jesus says, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for the glory of God, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And then later on, in verse 14 and 15, he tells his disciples, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. In other words, Jesus knows the end of the story. Jesus is approaching this sickness with a different perspective than his disciples, than Mary, than Martha, than Lazarus, because he knows the end from the beginning, and he knows how this is going to turn out, and he knows that death will not be the final word. Death is not going to be the end of this story for Lazarus. And not only that, but through this story, many people are going to come to believe in him. And not only that, but through this event, God will receive glory. Um, this story has been told over and over by the church for 2,000 years, and every time that it is told, this morning included, God gets glory from this event. And so here we have Jesus who knows the end from the beginning, and because of his perspective, the text is able to say both Jesus loved Lazarus and Jesus waited two days, even though to Mary and Martha it probably felt like, don't you care? Don't you love him? Why aren't you coming sooner? Um, and notice, from Jesus' perspective, he doesn't even call what happened to Lazarus death. Did you guys notice that? He uses a metaphor. The disciples totally miss it. What's the metaphor that he uses? Sleep. He says, Lazarus has fallen asleep. And that's actually a really, really beautiful metaphor, and the early church is going to pick up this metaphor and use it as well. Because if you think about it, what is the biggest difference between sleep and death? The biggest difference between sleep and death is one is temporary and one is permanent. And Jesus looks at what Lazarus is experiencing and he says, actually, death is an inappropriate term because it is temporary, and I know that Lazarus will walk out of that tomb. And so actually sleep is much more appropriate. And the early church is gonna take this on and begin to use sleep to talk about fellow believers who have died and saying they've fallen asleep. This is super important. I'm gonna to jump to application quickly because I can't move on without mentioning this. Um, this is such an important concept for our own lives when we are experiencing loss or grief or an unmet desire and we ask our friend Jesus for help just like Mary and Martha and we say hey 
the one you love needs something from you. The one you love is experiencing grief. The one you love is experiencing pain. And rather than this immediate response, we feel like we get kind of the door shut in our face and we're left waiting. And in the waiting, the lie that's so easy to creep in is, oh, maybe he doesn't love me as much as I thought he did, because where is he? He hasn't responded. Maybe he doesn't care for me as much as I thought he did. And I'm sure Mary and Martha, they're waiting day after day, and they're wondering, wait, maybe we weren't as close to Jesus as we thought. He hasn't shown up. And so something that I hope that we get from this passage is that when God's timing does not align with ours, it does not mean his love for us is any less. It's our job to trust that in our waiting, he's still good. It's our job to trust that in that waiting, he's still good. He still loves us. We just might not have the full story. We might not have the full picture. Now, after two days, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, who are probably very confused, okay, now it's time. Let's go back to Judea. Let's go to Lazarus. And how do the disciples respond? They have kind of a, a weird response. What do they do? They actually try and stop Jesus from going to Lazarus, okay? Look with me at, actually, I don't have the verse number. Thomas says to the disciples, oh, no, verse 8. Yeah, sorry, verse 8. Um, but Rabbi, this is what they say to Jesus when he's going to head back to Lazarus, but Rabbi, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Um, so this is absolutely true. Uh, the last time that Jesus was in Jerusalem, it was three months prior, in the month of December, Jesus was in Jerusalem to celebrate Hanukkah, what is now known as Hanukkah. He was in the temple, he was teaching, and a mob tried to stone him to death in the outer courts of the temple. Him and his disciples left Jerusalem, and they have not returned since. So the disciples are right when they say, uh, Jesus, maybe slow down for a minute. If you go back, uh, you're going to be in danger. Um, now, I have a map to show you guys because Lazarus lives in a village called Bethany, and I apologize how small this is, but uh, Bethany is a village a mile and a half outside of Jerusalem, a mile and a half. So for perspective, that's less than the length of Waikiki Beach outside of Jerusalem. So to go to Lazarus and to go to Bethany is basically to go back to Jerusalem, and to go back to Jerusalem at this time in his life would literally be like going and putting yourself into the hands of your enemies. And the disciples know this. And this is, uh, this is why Thomas says, when Jesus says, no, I'm going, Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. He's not talking about dying with Lazarus. He's talking about dying with Jesus. In Thomas's mind, when Jesus goes to Lazarus, his enemies will arrest him and will put him to death. Is Thomas correct? Yes. This will be Jesus' last journey to Jerusalem. When he goes to Lazarus, um, this is when his enemies will find him, will arrest him, and will put him to death on the cross. And the reason that I am pointing this out is because one way of looking at this story of Lazarus is an exchange of a life for a life. Jesus will go to Bethany, Lazarus will be raised to life, and Jesus will die. Um, Jesus' decision to return to Jerusalem is a picture of his self-sacrificial love. Just a few chapters later, Jesus is going to say, 
No one can show greater love than this, that someone would lay down their life for a friend. And just one chapter earlier, he said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And so Jesus is modeling this in his decision to go back to Bethany, uh, where he knows his enemies are waiting for him. All right, let's keep reading uh, our next scene, verses 17 through 38. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Okay, there's a lot in there. Um, I'm just going to highlight for you three things that I want to direct your attention to in this passage, in this scene. First, did you guys notice that in both of the women's encounter with Jesus, both women say the exact same line? Did you notice that? And what line is that? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, on the one hand, this, this, this line, this sentence actually shows that these women had great faith in Jesus. Because think about it, what is it implying? It's implying that if you had been here, it doesn't matter how sick my brother was, it didn't matter if he was on his deathbed, moments away from death, I, I believe you could have healed him. That's what that sentence says, and so it really reveals these women believed that if Jesus had gotten here, it doesn't matter how sick Lazarus was, Jesus would have prevented this. So we have to give it up for Mary and Martha. They have strong faith, but their faith has limits. And what is the limit of their faith? Death. In their minds, Jesus has power up until the moment of death. And they know that after that, not even Jesus has power 
over death and the grave. And so we see their faith has this limitation that says, Jesus, I believe that you are the Messiah. I believe that you have power to heal, but no one has power over the grave. And Jesus is going to gently correct this misunderstanding in what is probably the, the most powerful verse in this chapter, one of the most powerful verses in the Gospel of John. And I'm going to have it up on the screen. Uh, this is verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, and he's, he's talking to Martha at this moment. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. This is a great memory verse if you're looking for a, a memory verse to choose. Jesus is here making a promise. Um, we have a Bible school at YWAM, and we have them like labeled the text, and one of the things we have them look for are promises. This would be a promise. Jesus is making a promise, and it's not just to Mary or Martha, but it is to all believers. The one who believes in me and the promise is this, if you are a believer, death will never be, it can never be the end of your story. Death will not have a final word over you. That is a promise that Jesus makes. And even if you do die a physical death, as most if not all of us will, Death will not be the end, and it will not even be true death because it is not permanent. And actually, that death will be a lot more like falling asleep because it has an end date when you will be raised to life again. This is the great Christian hope. And the reason this is true is because of who Jesus is. He is the resurrection, and he is the life. And so if you belong to him, that life is yours. So now, um, Martha, sorry, Martha has this conversation with Jesus, and then Mary comes to Jesus. And I don't know if you guys picked up on this, but Martha's encounter with Jesus is very theological. She has a conversation with him. She has questions. He talks to her about theology, about the resurrection. Mary's encounter with Jesus is very emotional. So Mary comes out to Jesus. She falls down in front of him. And she's able to get one sentence out before she begins to weep. And the word for weep here, this is not like a, a silent tears. This is wailing and crying. So we, we try and imagine the scene. Jesus is standing. Mary has collapsed at his feet. And she is wailing and she is crying. And her cries are echoed by the friends and family who have followed her out to Jesus. They are also wailing and crying. This is the scene. And Jesus' response to this is not what you would expect, but it's so, so important. Uh, read with me verses 33 through 34. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Now I say that this response is unexpected because of everything we've just read so far, right? Jesus knows 
Lazarus, in a matter of minutes, is going to be raised from the dead. Jesus knows that this story isn't going to end in death. He knows the end of the story. So why does Jesus cry? Why does Jesus cry with Mary? And this is very important for us to understand. Um, Jesus is crying, I believe, not for Lazarus. I don't think Jesus' tears are for Lazarus. Jesus knows in 10 minutes, this funeral is going to be turned into the biggest party of their lives. I believe his tears are for Mary and for Martha and for their friends and their family who are experiencing real pain, real loss, real grief. And we can't miss this because I think sometimes what happens um, in the, for myself is we feel like either we have confidence in God, we have confidence in God's power over death, and it's all joy and happiness, or we have grief and we mourn. And I think what Jesus is doing here is he is modeling for us that those are not mutually ex- exclusive. That at the same time, Jesus has absolute confidence that Lazarus will rise while at the same time experiencing grief over the pain of loss. Um, Another way of saying that is Jesus at the same time affirms his power over death and grieves that death is present in the world at all. And that's such an important thing for us to understand. And it's such a beautiful truth about the character and the nature of Jesus that he comes to our place of pain and grief and he shares in it with us. He weeps at the tomb of his friend, even though he knows that resurrection is coming. God himself, all-powerful, comes and shares in the human experience in all of its fullness, including in grief. The last thing that I want to point out to you from this scene before we move on uh, has to do with a really interesting verb. And I'm going to put the, the verses on the screen. This verb is found twice in verse 33 and in 38. And this is the NIV, and the NIV translates this verb deeply moved. Um, You guys have a variety of translations probably, and so maybe your translation has chosen different words for deeply moved. And so it's used twice. The first time it says Jesus is deeply moved is when? It's when he sees Mary weeping. The second time it says that he's deeply moved is when he comes face to face with the tomb. They take him to the tomb and it says again, he's deeply moved. Um, This phrase, deeply moved, is the Greek word embrimaomai. And it's fairly unique in the New Testament. It's used uh, a few times. And it's most closely associated actually with anger or battle. Um, In Greek literature, it's most common usage is actually to describe the agitated snort of war horses when they are going into battle. That's actually how this word is most often used. But when it's used to describe a human, it's often used to describe a rush of outrage, fury, or anger. Very interesting. 
So we know that Jesus is experiencing grief. Why? Because he weeps. But now we're introduced to this other emotion, which is the emotion of anger. And that hopefully in your mind is leading you to the question, who is Jesus angry at? What is Jesus angry at? And there are actually some people who suggest, well, maybe he's angry at Mary for weeping. Maybe he's angry at Mary for maybe not having enough faith in him. But we know that that can't be true, right? Because Jesus himself joins them in weeping. Many Bible scholars believe that the anger that Jesus is feeling and expressing at this moment is actually directed towards death itself. Um, If you're familiar with the grand narrative of scripture, you know that the human race has two great enemies, sin and death. And in the cross, Jesus defeats both of these enemies, sin and death. And here, in this moment, Jesus is coming face to face with death, specifically death of a friend. Uh, Gary Berg, a scholar in his commentary on John, puts it this way. Here stands the one in whom victory, life, and resurrection are powerful realities. Jesus is angry at death itself and the devastation it brings. The Lord of life is now directly confronting his opponent, death, symbolized in the cave tomb before him. All right, let's read the the final scene together, the climactic moment. This is verses 39 through 44. Jesus uh, is standing in front of the tomb and he says, take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So when Jesus uh, instructs Martha to, or instructs them to take away the stone um, in front of the grave, which by the way, this was very common uh, to be buried in a cave. Um, This is actually a very similar tomb to the kind of grave that Jesus in just about a week will himself be laid in. Um, They were typically outside of the village or the town because in the Jewish culture, death is associated with being unclean. Um, Jesus tells them to roll away the stone And Martha objects, and she specifically mentions that he has been in the grave how many days? Four. I don't know if you guys picked up on this, but this is the second time in this narrative that John has gone out of his way to tell us Lazarus has been dead for four days. Now, this detail means probably nothing to us in the 21st century, but to an Israelite, this detail actually is very, very significant because there was this Jewish belief, and I think we could be safe to say it's a superstition, that for the first three days after uh, a person had died, the soul of that person remained near the body, hoping to re-enter it. It's like a superstition around death. But once decomposition set in on the fourth day, the spirit or the soul left, and 
in this case, the person was truly, truly dead. Um, and there's actually a tradition that says if in Jewish communities you would go on the third day to check like if the person uh, is alive or not. Lazarus here has been dead four days. And it is not an accident that Jesus times his entry so that he is coming to the tomb on the fourth day. In fact, this is very likely why he waits those two extra days so that when he arrives... Lazarus has not been dead two days, but four. So that every person there who is now an eyewitness can confirm that this actually is a resurrection from the dead. Now, what I love about the story of Lazarus, there's so many things I love about this story, and there's so many details. But overall, what I love about this story is it is a picture, a preview, if you will, of what will happen to each and every believer after their death. What happened to Lazarus will happen to you. Um, there is a promise in scripture that for all of us who put our faith in Jesus, after our death, there will come a moment where we will hear, just like Lazarus did, the voice of Jesus calling us out of our grave. Uh, we read about this in 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul describes it by saying, the Lord himself is going to come down from heaven with a loud command, and the dead in Christ will rise. And so I hope this morning, among the many points, the one thing we walk away from is that Jesus has power over the grave. And uh, in Hebrews, there's so many cross-references here, but in Hebrews it says that um, the fear of death is something that has enslaved the human race since the Garden of Eden. It is the great enemy of humanity, and if you've lost a loved one, you know your instinct is that this is not right. This is not right. There's something broken and wrong with this. And so when Jesus comes and he defeats the power of the grave, what it does for us is it frees us from the fear of death in a way that humanity had not experienced before this. Um, Gary Berg puts it this way in his commentary on John. He says, the raising of Lazarus does not mean that now this man and believers like him are no longer subject to mortality and death. Lazarus eventually died again. But imagine for a moment Lazarus's thoughts as he laid on his second deathbed, some years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Normal feelings of worry and fear were there in the corners of his soul, no doubt, but he had confidence. He knew that Jesus had a relationship with death like no other. Jesus was resurrection and life, and so he was not going to the grave alone. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up. Um, and as they come up, I, I want to read to you what is arguably one of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture. And you really can't preach on resurrection and not read this passage because it's so powerful and it's so beautiful. Um, it describes the hope that we all have in Jesus. Um, and so as we, as we transition into worship and we meditate on the love of Jesus, on the power of Jesus and the freedom that he brings, um, let's listen to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown, 
For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Um, One last thing I want to say is if you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus, maybe you've heard some stories, but you don't know him personally, um, I just want to encourage you uh, to find someone to talk to, either during worship, myself, Pastor Riz, um, even if you just want to hear more about what Jesus has to offer you, the freedom he offers you, um, the love that he offers you. Um, As we worship, feel free to come up to the front and pray or to take communion, pray with one another. All right, let's pray. Jesus, we love you so much, and we just stand here this morning, thousands of years after this story took place, and we say that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are the resurrection and the life and you have the power over the grave. Like it says in the book of Revelation, you hold the keys to death, you hold the keys to the grave. And so for those of us who believe in you, death is not something that we fear, it's something that we face with boldness and confidence because you go with us into the grave. You've you've transformed death into a passage to new life for those of us who believe in you. God, we thank you for who you are. We celebrate this morning who you are and what you give to us. Amen.